welcome to the Crash Course Podcast. I'm here with the usual suspects, and we'll get right into the news. So, first, a bit of local news. Um, Harry and the Potters, a wizard rock band, is playing at the Knitting Factory this Wednesday, August 15th at 6. Um, me and Mary, uh, one of the writers on the show, will on the website, rather, will be going to the show. So, if you'd like to show up in character, as a Harry Potter character, and want your picture up on the Facebook page... Please come find us, and we'll be more than happy to post it. We'd love to have some support. Um, you can identify Mary, because she'll be the one dressed, dressed as a female Draco Malfoy. So keep an eye out. And if you do not know what Wizard Rock is, check it out. If you are a nerd, you must get into Wizard Rock. It's it's a hysterical, satirical take on Harry Potter. And a lot of the bands actually branch into more of a nerdcore uh, style, rapping, rock, and all that sort of stuff. It's actually a very interesting and new type of music that's been coming out. And Mary has an article on this site which will explain all to you what Wizard Rock is. As well as it's about Harry and the Potter specifically, uh, this this most current article. Um, next, we're going to go into, um, we as a group watched the newest single, uh, Un- Unsustainable, from Muse. They have a new album coming out October 2nd, and we got to see the new video uh, for the new single, which was... Interesting, to say the least. Yeah, interesting. It was awesome. I loved it. Um, I know these guys didn't really appreciate the same way I do. It was a nice... Muse was doing dubstep epic. Uh, It wasn't quite a complete full song. It was a great album intro style song. Uh, But I loved it. It was awesome. I suppose my only issue, and don't get me wrong, I, I love Muse, I love just about everything that Muse does, but I felt that the dubstep kind of inhibited the epic. Not so much helped it. No, they didn't quite uh, replace their instruments with the beatbox. They kept it, they, they kept playing. It wasn't just a, a dubstep with some weird combinations on it. it. It knew its role. The Skrillex style music knew what it was doing. Well, let's get to the point here. I don't think they were trying to do epic so much as they were trying to do surreal. That's uh, what I got from this. I could agree with that. It and definitely I, seemed very surreal, especially with the video. Too. Oh, yeah. And that's the thing. The video is really the only way you're going to get that vibe. I feel like without the video, it would not quite have the same effect. But I'm not, I'm not saying anything for the album. The album, they could go in completely different directions. Muse usually surprises me. So, you know. It, it's it's def- just the single. It's definitely piqued my interest for the new album called The Second Law. Which, as I said earlier, comes out in October. Um, I'm definitely very excited to see what they do with the new record. This has definitely got my attention for sure. Um, And I guess we'll see. I definitely do want to review that on the show because I think it'll be an album we'll have fun with no matter what. I'm sitting here shaking from anticipation. I I want to see this so bad. I want to hear this album. And I have to say, I was probably the only one during the entire video that was just grinning like an idiot. It was... That sort of a fun beat song. Oh, you're making me feel unloyal here. I love <laughs> Muse, I really do. I just, you know, it's not everything works. Not everything. But, but most of it has. Most have of it faith. has. Have faith, have faith. Have faith, young Pablo. Um, our next story it comes from the Beastie Boys. Uh, they got into a little bit of scuffle with Monster Energy Drink. It seems that they filed suit. Because, which song was it? Sabotage. And parts of Sabotage were used in a commercial for Monster Energy Drink. And as if anybody who really knows the Beastie Boys outside of their music, 
they feel that's selling out. They've never authorized any sort of music being used in a commercial to sell a product. Actually, with several songs, Sabotage, So What You Want, Make Some Noise, and Looking Down the Barrel of a Gun. I didn't... So, that's actually pretty serious, come to think of it. Before, <laughs> that's before, a lot of infringement. Before Adam's death on uh, May 4th, due to cancer, he died very young, at 47, he had gone on record saying that he, they, you know, they didn't feel comfortable, him specifically had said that they don't feel comfortable using their music in this kind of promotion. And the fact that a company would go against the wishes of someone, A, who is a very respected member of the music community, and B, has died recently, it just seems very disrespectful, very unacceptable. I mean, and it's just, I mean, I I see no reason for, for the Beastie Boys to not, like, they definitely should file suit. I mean, it's not, it's, it's irre- irrehensible. Yeah, this is a little bit of a different scenario, because usually I'm a little bit, you know, I kind of roll my eyes when bands are like, we're going to file suit. It seems a little petty to me, but in this case, when you're dealing with last wishes of somebody, I think you said it, John, that's morally and legally questionable Yeah, at the best. Uh, well, it's, uh, legally they didn't get the rights. Yes. Uh, okay, sure. and not only that, it was, uh, reading here, it was a 23-minute melody of Beastie Boy songs available for download. They actually were using it as as uh, they're giving away Beastie Boy music for free, yeah. which I'm not saying you can't get it for free anyway. Uh, like YouTube, you can stream their videos all day long, especially these songs. But they, they actually created a product stealing from somebody else and gave it to the masses. It wasn't even like a satire or a, a comedy version like Weird Al does. It was just. Butchering they, Beastie Boys. They took songs that they didn't have the rights to, created a compilation that they didn't have the rights to make, and then released it for download. That's the worst part. Like, I mean, if it were in an ad on TV, there's a little more leeway, although it's still wrong. The fact that they're releasing it and giving it to the public without the Beastie Boys' permission, and it's not their music, it's the Beastie Boys, it doesn't belong to Monster, that's the biggest problem, is that you can't do that. You know, there are copyright laws for a reason. And the fact that they would do that so close after Adam had passed away is just not right. Eh, it it's, uh, shows a lack of respect. Just, just for music in general. Um, I'm not saying that Monster Energy Drink is going to be a very highbrow kind of organization. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but it, it's, a, it's really a shame. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And... I'm curious to just hear what the finality of it is, but I can't imagine that the Beastie Boys would lose this suit. I mean, and most importantly, if they lose this suit, it actually sets a really ugly precedent in the music community. It it, it actually opens up the whole torrenting and sharing aspect. Well, if this company can get away with taking music without permission and and releasing it to the public, why can't people uh, download music for free? Why can't you make videos and sell them online using John Lennon? Yeah. Even though uh, he's dead. It's okay. Anyway. We're yeah. going to now move on to our album review of the week. Um, this week we are reviewing the album Speaking Code by Eve Six. It's their first record in about ten years. Um, they had broken up after their third album had bombed um, sales-wise. And they came together this year um, to, well, I imagine before that, to actually record the album, uh, to put together a new album, and um, this album came out in April of this year, and it happens to be one of my favorites. It was my choice this week. Um, I'm a diehard Eve 6 fan. I've been listening to them since I was in junior high school, 
and they're definitely a band that I feel very close to. And, and while we respect that, this has put us into a state of conflict, our little band here. <laughs> it was a solid uh, alt-pop rock album. It really was. They they had a very... They knew what they were doing. They know how to play their instruments. The lyrics, the writing was still uh, above the general masses. Eve Six knows how to write lyrics. I want to delete the alt. Uh, just rock pop? Rock pop. Okay. Yes. Or pop rock? No, rock pop. Fine. It's different. <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> it was, it, it was uh, poetry. Their lyrics have always been poetry. And it came across the same way. And that, for me, was a very nostalgic sounding. It sounded great. I uh, definitely was grooving along to the singer. But the rest of it was the same as well for Eve Six. It, it felt like they were remaking their same albums. Yeah, that's the strange thing. Because if you get a band that has taken a 10-year hiatus, the... The likely thing you'd expect to happen is that there'd be some evolution in that time. And in this band, I just didn't see that in the slightest. They went right back to where they started. I mean, I don't know. It's just, it doesn't, it doesn't leave a very good taste in my mouth at the end of it. Only because they're so stuck in that little bubble. Now, I, I agree with John on the point. It, I think it was very, it was well written in that style. But it's a style that's sort of dying. It's not to say that, you know, you, there, there's not a market for that. But I feel like even the people in that market tend to want some semblance of evolution. Which we got, you know, in the last decade with uh, indie music primarily. I think that was the natural successor to that genre of late 90s music. But here, it was just a complete throwback. For me, as a, a fan of theirs, but even as just a fan of 90s music in general, I felt it was like opening a time capsule. And for me, it was... It was I, I enjoyed that. You know, this album is definitely directly out of the late 90s. It sounds very much like their other albums. And it was kind of nice for me to see this band come together after being separated for so long and just pick up right where they left off. And while it does feel a little out of place in the current music market, I personally quite welcomed it. Um, the first song I had actually heard off the new record was Lost and Found when they released a lyric video for it on YouTube, um, I believe a month or two before the album came out. And... Lost and Found was a song that I identified with very closely, because as I said before, I really like their lyrics, but Lost and Found is essentially a song about our current generation and kind of being lost in this terrible job market, this kind of depression that doesn't feel like a depression, and it's kind of like, it was very uplifting, because even though it was about the sad state of current, of, of the current time, it was in a positive manner. It's, you know, this, we'll still pick our head up, we'll still move forward, kind of like a move along by All American Rejects. That's exactly how I likened it. I found uh, Eve Six does great, sad but uplifting. Their their music, especially lyrically, tends to have a little bit of a harder, sadder edge to it um, than you would associate with the beat, but it's portrayed in such a way to make you actually feel better after you're hearing about slightly or even seriously depressing things. It It makes you realize everything is bad, but it will get better. You will feel better by the end of it. And this album did portray that very well. Well, that's just the thing. That's on the lyrical side of things. But as we know, I, I, I'm first affected by music before I am lyrics. So I have to look at what they're pr pretty much using as a backdrop. I, I think their general musical sound is sort of a backdrop for the meaning that is embedded within their lyrics. So let's just 
break this down. You know, let's start up with the first track here, Curtain. Like the vocals, uh, I immediately noticed it was that sort of indie pop rock or pre-indie pop rock. But, you know, it had good momentum, good pep, very uplifting, uh, crisp bass, and it, it just had this sort of driving quality to the to the song. It was it was moving it along. I liked that aspect about it. Good driving music. I, I think you you found the piano and drum combination that they were working into it uh, to really move the track along. Right. Um, but but number two and number three, Victoria, Situation, Infatuation. Those two songs. They were trying to experiment with a more uh, recent sound. They were including a little more uh, manufactured, synthesized style beats, a little bit of techno, a little bit of uh, the 8-bit style, the the chip style music. It didn't quite flow for me. It wasn't too prevalent either. It's too subtle, I think, that inclusion. But that little bit of subtleness kind of jarred it a little bit off for me. It got away from that that 90s sound and, and derailed it a little. Well, that's a funny thing because I didn't feel that it was necessarily derailed. Like, the same thing that I heard in Curtain, I continued to hear in Victoria and Situation Infatuation. I I think that those first three tracks were basically a static sound. They had a very similar vibe from one to the next. It it blended as a sort of background music. Like I said, it's the kind of thing you might want to turn on in the car when you're, you know, just going to do sort of an everyday thing with your friend. You're going to, like, a, a convenience store or something like that, but, you know, you're fooling around in the meantime. Just basic everyday activities, sort of like a, a Kevin Smith film or something like that. You're in Jersey. <laughs> this is what I get from this. Aww. It's not a bad thing, because I love Kevin Smith. <laughs> it's just, it, it's it's background music to me. Because after the third track, it's about when I'm starting to judge the album. Is this going to be the standing sound for the duration of the album? For me, Victoria was definitely a solid single. It hit all the no- right notes to be a single. Uh, especially a mass media single, you know, with a video and everything. It just it very much felt like, you know, a song that you could easily market on the radio. You know, it was that three minute and 30-something seconds strong single. Ah, but every song had that quality, in a way. It was an album of singles, if, if, if that's your criteria for a single, at least. Yeah, I mean, I would say that they could have probably plucked any out, any song off the album as a single, but I just felt like Victoria kind of... Especially with the, the change in the intro a little bit and how it kind of was using that modernized sound a little it bit. Great, I did like the intro. Yeah, it, it, the only intro. problem is it was about five to ten seconds. Yeah, <laughs> it was a very short short intro, yeah. And the rest of the song, I just, I don't know, was kind of a throwaway to me, personally. But I also feel like the the single shouldn't always be the strongest track on the album. In fact, I often like when the, sing, the oh, strongest sure. track on the album isn't even a single at all. Because I'm hoping that the Muse single is not. <laughs> right. Uh, but, but But what I'm saying is like, like, I like that Victoria was kind of this throwaway, here's your single kind of track, because songs later on, when we get into more detail about, like, Lost and Found and Moon, these songs were so much stronger, more powerful, and they were, they're not singles. They're not going to be singles, as far as I know. They're just on the record, and I like that. And actually, after after the third track, we got BFGF, which... Yeah, that uh, was the first time they changed it up for me. And that was the first time I really started enjoying this album. It really mm-hmm. it really started hitting home that this, this was fun. Um... I likened it to a more uplifting version of like a early Weezer rock, and that's what it really felt like to me. It was it had great guitar. I really enjoyed the guitar work in this one. Uh, the, my best the best quality in this song for me is lyrics. 
lyrics and vocals. Really? Because <laughs> the thing is, by this point, I was really, really tired of the music. It, that's the, the, I was about to really, really judge it on its musical standing. So I said, all right, let, let's, let's focus on the lyrics. Not to say that it was, you know, happenstance, but by that point, the, I think BFGF was one of the stronger lyrical tracks. In terms of uh, the manner in which they approached it, like, the music itself is minimalist. It starts out, you know, it's just a steady beat, but over that, he's got this sort of fast-paced uh, rhythmic quality to his voice, which I really, really enjoyed. That was present in that song, I think. And that was present later on in the album, too. Where, True, uh, just the it, first time I noticed it is my point. But it, it, it didn't stick throughout the album, and I think that would have made it uh, a little bit stronger. If the layering uh, of the instruments complemented his voice just a little bit better in some of the tracks. I think especially the ones that I'm not too fond of in the beginning of the album, That's if if point. the instruments matched the vocals a little bit better, it would have been a more solid album for me. I agree with you 100%. I'm, like I said, this is the, the lyrics are the saving grace. I'm not sure if there's a marriage that I really detect there, though. But we got to talk about Lost and Found. So Lost and Found is a song that that is very lyrically driven. I mean, the whole record is very lyrically driven. The reason I think I've always liked Eve Six as a fan of music is, as much as I like music, I am very drawn to good, solid, strong, passionate lyrics. I'm the type of person who likes to sing along. And Eve Six has always been a band where message is important, but not a message like a Rage Against the Machine album where it's, you know, politics and life. It, Eve Six is more the everyman. You know, it, it's a message about, you know... You know, a bad breakup, or, you know, life's getting you down, or there's a silver lining. But it's not about the world political. It's about, you know, just kind of this everyday, you know, the message of life is important, and it'll get better. And it was, Lost and Found is where the lyrics really peaked. It had a very strong message. The song was, the, the music behind it was very good, and it was just this very powerful, keep your head up kind of message. And they do a great job at that. I will definitely say that for it. I mean... Like it's a band that's impossible to dislike for that reason. I, I think it just it has this quality to it, which is so uplifting, <laughs> almost mind-numbingly uplifting, if that's possible. That you know you could have it on in any setting, any under any circumstances, and you're going to be in a generally good mood. I just don't think there's as much to really focus on, except in Lost and Found and the following track, Moon, which was my absolute favorite. It was definitely the strongest transition on the album. They took Lost and Found, which was this upbeat, fast-paced kind of, you know, we're going to pick you know, pick your head up kind of message that transitioned into Moon, which was a much slower, acoustic guitar, mellow, almost romanticized kind of song, which was... Which is right up my alley. <laughs> which was a very perfect transition. And stuff they've done in the past on other albums. Yeah, if you had the complexity of the layering of the instruments in Lost and Found to a very simple tune in Moon. And it... The outro and to intro, like those two tracks, just go together. They they yeah, are they easily. are cheese and bread. But Moon, as we're listening to it, I was uh, I looked over at Steve at one point where there was a breakdown, and it went back into the tune. And I looked at him and I go, at this point, most songs would get ruined because most bands would just bring in a nice heavy rock and try to power through it and True. kill the song. True. And they actually did it later on in the song, but they yeah, did they it did. tastefully. Yeah, tastefully they... enough. Like, that's the thing, with a band like this, I almost, I, I expect that kind of thing. You expected it, I expected it. So when it came, it could have been done a lot poorer than it was. 
And it was it was almost necessary. I think it broke up because the song was starting to get a little bit monotonous, but not enough where I was starting to dislike it. Sure. I think it broke up the actual song enough to do a great outro of the song, a great culmination of these two tracks together. And by keeping it simple, but complicated a little bit, uh, a little bit harder, and then just finishing up with that same sort of soothing sound to a, a finality to the track. Well, you know what I think I like about it most... Uh, that that transition was um, the fact that I think it tied the album together because there was a similarity in that breakdown that you you could equate it to another song on the album any other song on the album and and I think that really does tie Moon with the rest of the album because Moon otherwise would sound very 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 different it's just it's, it's, it's a folk song almost and that I mean that's contrary to the indie pop rock sound they have going on here so I, um, even though I might prefer the folk side of things to the indie pop rock side, I still agree that when you're discussing about the full arc of an album, you really do have to have some continuity. So I think by including that breakdown, they achieve that continuity, and instantaneously Moon is married with the rest of the album. But I think they kind of lost it when they went into uh, Downtown, which was the next song. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, it was a much faster beat, and... Uh, Storm put it as, Matt put it as a, a happy-go-lucky style song, a fun song, and I could see why that's a fun, it is a fun song. Uh, not my favorite, but it it worked, but it did not work in t- context of the rest of the album at that point. It could have worked better earlier. Well, it was weak because uh, Moon was so good. I that, think that's, that's the, the big problem, is I think a song, if you had heard Downtown outside of the album, I think it would have had a much different impact than Following Moon. Because Downtown is very reminiscent of songs they've done on previous albums. But the fact is, Downtown is your very, you know, here's a ha- happy-go-lucky kind of fast-paced song kind of a throwaway. You know, I, I think I see your point there, and it's very, very valid. Because I think the vast majority of listeners that I talk to, they have the same exact uh, experience. Where, what you know, their favorite track on an album will be somewhere in the middle. It's, it has to have a follow-up. You yeah. know, you got to put something afterwards unless you've actually made the best track the last track. Yeah. And it's just, you're bound to lose people at that yeah, point. Sure. Because you're still hung up in the uh, the ecstasy of the previous track. That You know, you're still moved by it. you just kind of going to gloss over the next one. It's going to take you, um, I think, a few minutes to to rebound. I think that's the way it works. And it got a little repetitive, too. There was a whole... At the end, uh, a whole extra chorus that we didn't need. Yeah. It was just, it's too many minutes of the same. I do have a suspicion, though. Downtown as a song by itself, not suspicion, a theory. Theory is the word I was going for. Downtown as a song by itself is not terrible. It's an okay, kind of throwaway track. Trust Me was much better, especially lyrically. I feel like they may have put Downtown there on purpose. If they had the breakdown of the whole album, they said, well, we need to follow up something with Moon, and nothing's going to follow Moon. Why don't we put this song, that would have been okay anywhere, after Moon, so we can kind of separate um, Trust Me from Moon, and let Trust Me still have its own impact. Because Trust Me was a very good, kind of, um, also a kind of happy-go-lucky song, but much stronger lyrically. And a little bit less happy. Right. It was uh, uh, satirically done. It was. I was smiling. I was laughing during this track. <laughs> um, 
it's basically about a guy lying to girls, and I, I enjoyed it. It was the you just starting to hear it. He's building himself up, building stuff up. He's like, "You love me? Well, then trust me." Yeah, I mean, the the opening of the yeah. chorus is, t- "I'm the type of guy." Cheek. It's ironic. I'm the type of guy you can't throw very far, but you can trust me. And it's you know it harkens to the whole oh I don't I can trust him about as far as I can throw him, and I like that they kind of. Did that? I thought it was very fun and, and that, funny. That's clever. I mean, it makes sense that they actually separated the two songs because if you're um, worried about the same thing that I was worried about, you know, that uh, people are going to gloss over the track after your favorite track, then they might miss that irony. They might really, really right. miss. So it. I think Downtown might have been more intentional, to, intentionally placed than we first thought. Now that we're discussing it, yeah, I, I suppose that's just it. Should have if it, it had an upbeat feel to it. I feel that it just didn't have enough going for it. It should have, if it was going to be upbeat, it should have been really upbeat. Yeah. It shouldn't have just been generic. That's the thing. You ruin, you ruin the high a little bit when you do something like that. But I do have to say, Trust Me had the best breakdown rebuild in the whole album, where they just killed their weapons and then brought them back up. If It, it, it really sort of just culminated the end of it, and that's why I was not a very big fan of the next two tracks, because, once again, it felt like they were doing the same thing. It was uh, everything and picking up the pieces really were just too weak to end this album. As opposed to a lot of albums I listen to where it, it seems like the first few tracks and the, first, uh, and the last few tracks of the albums I really, really like are the strongest for me. It, it was like the, the guts of this album were just great. Which is weird, because, Steve, you said that most people find their favorite song in the middle. I try to find my favorite songs beginning or end. That's where I usually love my music. Oh, it depends for me. I mean, you know, we discussed this all Lions a little while ago. I absolutely adored Circles. I think it's a very strong way to pull you in. So, actually, I, I would rate um, an, album's, uh, an album's effect on you by everything. By the first impressions... The climaxes and the the note that it, the taste that it leaves in your mouth. I think it should have a beginning, middle, and end. I mean, really, when you say that, oh, it's okay to put a a, a cheap uh, throwaway there. I, I think that's kind of a cheap thing to say. Period. I mean, ideally, it should all be good. <laughs> I think that for the same reason that that you don't like the last couple of tracks, I think I do like them, and it's not because they're a letdown for me. The flow of the album, I feel, is very cyclical, and it's a solid album for me, a really solid album, because it flows in very, very, very uh, obvious peaks and valleys. And the final song, uh, Picking Up the Pieces, was a very downplayed, kind of slow, kind of conclusionary, if that's a word. Conclusive? Conclusive. (laughs) That's probably what I was going for. A very conclusive sound. All of a sudden, we're all, like, Spanish and Italian. We want to throw that extra syllable in. Yeah. But it felt very... uh, ha, ha, it had that finality. It was like you know we're winding down. You know we're nice, picking up the pieces, yeah. and I and I liked that. I, it wasn't as strong musically as a lot of the other tracks, but I still liked the message behind the song and how it flowed and how it wrapped up the album. But at the same time, I understand that, and I did find it to be one of the better songs on the album. It didn't kill the album. It just was a little bit of a weak ending for it. I felt it probably could have fit. Right before Lost and Found, it actually probably would have flowed that song better. But it Lion's Den, Blood Brothers, tracks five and six, uh, everything, pick up the pieces. 
for me, these songs all had very similar beats, similar sounds, similar lyrics. It was almost like they were replaying the song over and over again. Now, they are distinct, and lyrically, i gotta, I got to reiterate this, they're poets. It's, if you hear the words, you're hearing something great. But these, you, so, you started losing the actual lyrics in the music because you were just getting a very bland feeling to it. I'm not saying it's terrible, but it's not quite good enough for me. Not quite enough to truly grip me and grab me and bring me in for a full album of awesome. Because Lost and Found and Moon were awesome. They worked so well together. If I put one on a playlist, I have to put the other right behind it. Oh, I they agree. go. I agree 100%. Uh, trust me, different playlist, but it's going to go on a playlist. I mean, that's going to go on my, I'm feeling kind of, uh, ironic. I'm feeling kind of like, you know, a smart aleck right now. I'm going to hear that song. But the rest of it was starting to get forgotten for me. It was... Well, I think we all got to be careful with our double standards here. Because I did once say that I enjoy an album to have peaks and valleys. Now here I'm saying that, you know, it's, no, it should all be good, blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, it's a matter of, on a matter of musical skill, I think, yes, it should all be good. I, I think I really would prefer there to be no throwaways at all. I don't believe in a throwaway on an album, otherwise it hurts the album for me. But I do believe that emotionally speaking, you can take it down a notch. Now, maybe perhaps in the, in the framework that this band has established, they consider that to be an emotional decline. But I thought it was a serious skill-level decline. So that could be a difference of opinion. I mean, I don't know how much you can really judge skill-level. It's just, they decided to do a very simple, straightforward song. There's nothing wrong with simple and straightforward. The only thing is that it lacked... It lacked... Uh, lacked a lot to me. It just... I, I, we're talking about the last two tracks here. Mm -hmm. Everything, it is such a typical 90s swooning song, you know... That I, I can't take it seriously because it's been done to death. Um, and I think every song should at least offer you something new. If, if, if even a little bit uh, um, mellowed out, it should be something new. Something that we have not seen before. But this track, as, as well as a lot of other tracks, as John just said, it's just more of the same, more of the same, more of the same. It's getting redundant after a while. And by the end, you really notice it. But that's not to say the album as a whole doesn't have an arc. I mean, the album actually goes together very oh, no, that, well. That's what I meant by framework. They have a framework that, okay. that their arc is, is that kind of thing. I think that's their idea of a, of, a, of, a, of a valley. They did what they do well. Yeah. And it's a good thing. They could, they could throw these sounds, they could write these songs like, like nothing else. They could, they could write them in a day. <laughs> that's how the good they are at writing these type of songs. So the not bad. It's just not awesome. It's just not awe-inspiring, gripping-your-heart kind of a beating. I mean, not that. Not even great. But good. Well, Okay. <laughs> I think for me... Very mediocre, I'm sorry. And the reason I've been kind of quiet is it's much harder to talk about an album when you feel very strongly positively about it, especially if you've listened to it multiple times, because for me... I have less to say because it's very, I find it it's sad in life. There's a lot more to say when you don't like something than when you do like something. Because when you do like something, eventually you're just saying the same thing over and over again. Talking about each track individually, I would have said a lot of the same things about each. I mean, I had already said several times how strong I felt about the lyric and the lyrics and that the 
album was lyrically driven. And believe me, I had the same issue with As Tall as Lions, and we're all bound to put our hearts on the table at some right. point. But for me, I mean, this album, when it comes down to it, the finality of it, this album's a five for me. And I'll explain why it's a five for me. It's a five for me because it's an album that I could listen to over and over again. And I did when it first came out. It's an album that fits from start to finish. It's what I expected and surpassed those expectations for what I wanted from Eve 6. If I had listened to it as not an Eve 6 fan, my feelings may be different. But I can't take that out. That's part of me. I mean, I have an article on the site called How Eve 6 Saved My Life. And it's all about how Eve 6... In moments of my life, their songs have influenced or reflected or been a part of me. And what we are coming to determine here is that most of this is lyric-driven for you. Yes. And on that, I, I hands down, they are very, very good lyricists. I am not criticizing that in it at all, really, to be honest. I mean, it's difficult for me to gauge some of the lyrics on, on a first listen, but, you know, from the, the lyric that you pick up here and there, it, they're obviously skilled at it. They're good, good writers. They're not. They're not just tossing words out there and hoping that they'll make sense. They have a plan, it's distinct, they have a message. That, that's a very, very fair quality given. It's just, we're coming this from, from, at this from different angles. Uh, I, I just am gripped by music first. So they lacked a musical um, pull in the first few tracks, and they did not bring it around in the end. So it's uh, going to get a few lower points for me in that regard. Well, uh, what? You, uh, I'm in suspense. Did you give it a five? I did. I said that ah. for me it's a five because of how I feel about it, how it relates to me, and because I could, to me a five is an album that I don't think I'd ever get tired of. I really like. It doesn't have to be the highest pinnacle of quality as far as it has to be what it means to me. I mean, I think, and that's what's important about our ratings here, is that we all rate these albums based on what they mean to us. Because when it boils down to it, you can only be uh Empirical for so long, you oh. have to have some personal. You're influence. gonna make me feel guilty. <laughs> no. no, what do you what do you think? Because for you, you're rating it for a different reason than I am, and also to me, like I said, I'm an E6 fan. I just can't separate that. So, two point nine, <laughs> just shy of three. Just shy of three. Three three is average. This is mediocre. Just just not good enough. Yeah, and don't ask me to explain what's the difference between average and mediocre. It's, it's just a very, very tricky system. I, I, I feel like, yeah, it is just sh shy of not good enough. That's just right. shy of good enough. Before I tell you what I'm going to rate this at, I'm going to tell you what, after the album, after we listened, what I showed Steve. And the first thing I did when I showed, when, when we were done actually listening, was I brought up All American Rejects. And the reason I brought them up is because they're in the same sort of uh, framework as Eve Six. Uh, they were they're the band that was that could have been Eve Six in between the time they stopped making music. Mm. They're I, I love All American Rejects and their songs. They're a little bit harder, not quite as lyrically uh, complicated, but musically a little more complicated for me. I love them. I really do. I wouldn't give any of their albums a five, but I've given most of their songs fours. I'm going to give Eve Six a four as well. Now, I was going to rate them lower before we actually did this podcast, but uh, I, I got to say, they knew what they were doing. They knew what they were getting themselves into. They hadn't made music in a decade. 
They hadn't even worked together. They stayed in touch but stopped doing everything associated with their sound. They did not have a time to really evolve their sound out of the 90s into what we come to expect nowadays. And they had a very clear plan on how they were going to talk to people. And they actually did do it very well. Looking at it first, I found it to be very stale because I had heard all the 90s. I had heard Semisonic. I had heard all these different bands that had done the same exact noise at times. But this is a band that, that really, I'm not saying they didn't grow up, but they didn't feel the need to change from what they did before. And that's respectable. That's why I got to give it a four. They knew what they were doing. And there is an arc in, in each of their songs because lyrically they knew what they were doing. They were doing poetry. And in, in, in a, overall, while it wasn't super strong, I mean, it was very well made. They knew every point, A, B, C, D. Their guitars were just there. Their bass was there. Their drums were there. They were just what you're used to listening to for the past, you know, 10, 15 years. I'm going to cry now. That's you okay. You want me to give it a three? I'll do it. I'll do it, I'll do it right now. <laughs> so I got to say, while, while the little bit of experimentation they did in the beginning didn't quite work out, their old sound, looking back now, got better with age. I'm not going to say it's a five. It's never going to be a five, but... While it was stale at first, it did it did seem like it grew on me. You know what? I'm going to raise one more point, and it is to your credit, to both of your credit, because to be honest, I, I really do think I'm, I'm unfairly judging this album. I think that one of the main reasons I'm putting it so low is really it's, uh, it's out of placeness, out of time. It, it, it belongs in a previous decade where otherwise it would have done really, really well. And I think that being attached to a decade and a type of music is not the worst thing in the world, because people do it all the time. And I raised this point earlier that I don't think I can draw the line between a band like this and a band like The Young Veins. If you're not familiar with them, The Young, ba the Young Veins are a band that is very adept at pulling off an early 60s rock style. Now that is incredibly far removed, and yet I find it to be the most... I find them to be incredibly talented for that reason, because it seems to have been a style that's gone out of favor. People don't really listen to that kind of music anymore. Even people who listen to the Beatles, most of today's audience likes late Beatles. They don't like early Beatles. There's just something about that early 60s and 50s uh, style which just seems so dated they can't wrap their head around it. And yet, this band is being stubborn, they're going right back to it, and they're making it their own. I can't fault them for that. As because I can't fault them for that, I'm not sure I can fault Eve Six for that. I'm going to actually say 3.5 now. Okay. Good point. Good point. And okay, so actually, we told we told Matt a much lower that we 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 kind of started bashing it during uh, and after when he had left the room. We started we started complaining how this uh, Eve Six kind of felt like Lincoln Park, where they have not changed their sound ever, but. It's it's respectable as opposed to the way Lincoln does it, which it seems like they're just banking on their old stuff. And that's where that's a comparison I gotta make. And yeah, that's that's the flip side. So so you it's you a got very tricky it. album to uh to rate for that exact reason, because there's a lot of double standards at work here. A lot. And I wasn't actually 
respecting any of that complexity and listening to it. Because like I said, as much as I want to just say, hey, I'm a professional. What are we here for? Come on. <laughs> I, I, I want to, you know, I could get on that hall of high my stance and be like, you know, I'm a professional. My personal influence is not going to affect my rating. But that's a whole lot of garbage. Any reviewer yeah, who says their personal it. opinions don't affect their ratings are liars. Because you can't. You, you can remove yourself to a point, but if there's something you're a huge fan of, like someone who loves first-person shooters and plays Call of Duty all the time, yeah. as John raises his hand, is not going to be able to say, you know, that he's not influenced by his love of shooters on other games that he might not like as much. It, preference influences judgment to a point. But I'm glad that you guys enjoyed it. I'm glad that you guys enjoy, enjoyed it more than you thought it would, thought you would, and... Like I said, the thing that really defines it as a five for me is that it's everything that I wanted, and that's not, really it. I'm not saying I enjoyed it. I'm just saying it's, <laughs> no, it was very well. It was okay. it was done right. It, we got we got to stick to our instincts here. I did not enjoy the album as a whole, but they believe in what they have to say, and they say it well, with every very bit of well certainty. Okay, so okay, so. Five, four, and three and a half, so about a little bit over a four overall. Are we going to have to bring calculators to these little averages? Yes. After yes, yes, we will. last week's Travis well, Steve mod. Well, I was only planning on doing halves and fulls, and then Steve is throwing point eights everywhere. And... <laughs> it's sort of like a rounded down four, so solid album, listen to it, see if you if enjoy it. If you're a fan it. of 90s alternative, pick up this album. Oh yeah, definitely. If you're yeah. just a, a fan of music in general, then give it a listen first. I mean, this is why we have stuff like Spotify and iTunes out there, so you can sample your music and 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 take what you want from it. But it's a nostalgia album. I'm going to leave it at that for me. I think that's a great way to to, to end this. So moving on, we're also going to talk today about this idea that I had had months ago, months and months ago, that I'd never really been able to work into an article just because it kind of fell to the back burner of everything else. But I want to discuss today, and I had inspired my co-hosts as well, to put together a top ten list of your personal favorite soundtracks and or scores for movies. Um, we've been wanting to tackle music in the media for a long time, movies, games, TV, but it's a very big, broad, and kind of overwhelming topic. So we're going to work into it over months and months, you know, we'll review, we, we definitely want to review soundtracks in the future and, and talk about movies and music. But today, I just want to talk about starting with my top 10 favorite soundtracks. And we're going to go around discussing why we chose these soundtracks and um, then discuss each other's choices as well. Because I think it, it's important to see what everyone else thinks and how, how much their soundtracks fit to their personality and their style. Now, for me, at first, it was in order of favorite to least favorite, but recently, after having to change a few things, now it's just a solid top ten in no specific order. Um, starting with Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. This is a soundtrack that I felt was very indicative of the mood of the movie, the, the time period of the movie, and it was just a very solid collection of tracks that, when you listen to it, you f you remember the scenes that those songs were in, because there were very few scenes in the movie where there wasn't some kind of music playing. Um, my next choice was my favorite musical of all time, for sure, hands down, which is the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I, I saw this at a very young age. I love this movie. I love its music. Um, Tim Curry wears fish, fishnets like a champ. And I just think that it's, it's a very strong soundtrack. 
um, musically. It's not the pinnacle of music and creativity, but I thought it was a very solid soundtrack, and I very much enjoyed it. We have to agree that it it drove a cult culture around it. Oh, yeah, where they're still doing... That's not redundant in the slightest. (laughs) No, definitely not. And and while I'm not a fan of the actual musical, and I'm frankly getting tired of people, like, coming along and singing these, these songs, I gotta respect... Through the time yeah. warp again. It, it, it is very interesting and did inspire a lot of people to enjoy a, a different side of culture that not many people seem to get into, which is Broadway and that style. My next soundtrack was one that is very influenced by the movie that it represents. Um, Free and Loathing in Las Vegas has a great classic soundtrack um, that very much complements the scenes, the scenery... And the feel of this Vegas-inspired movie. Um, my next one after that is is one of the first soundtracks that really has a score as well as a selection of songs mixed together to make a very broad soundtrack. And that's Back to the Future. Everyone remembers, if you're a Back to the Future fan, the title theme. Back in time. As well as the Back Huey Lewis-inspired songs. Um the- I mean, everyone... The Huey Lewis inspired or the Huey well, Lewis the, songs? Well, the Huey Lewis songs. Well, the, the thing is, is about the funny thing about Back to the Future is, before Back to the Future, Ghost, Ghostbusters, they wanted Huey Lewis to do the soundtrack, and he wouldn't. So they got someone to completely rip him off, who did the Ghostbusters thing. So when Back to the Future stepped up and says, hey, we want you to do the soundtrack, Huey Lewis went, maybe it's my best interest to actually do this soundtrack. And this, he did. This way I get paid. Yeah, <laughs> and it was a very great soundtrack. I mean, you know, one of my most memorable scenes in the movie is soundtrack influence, and that's Johnny B. Good, which, oh, yeah. which oh yeah, everybody remembers, which that, is though. the Marty McFly cover. You know, he did, he did this song, and he did it well. And it should it, be that, known at this point that that is easily on my list as well. <laughs> yeah, and it was just a very well done song. Um, my next selection is another musical, but I feel like a movie that was created just to kind of bridge these songs together and make this kind of movie pushed by these songs. And it's Across the Universe, which is obviously a Beatles-influenced soundtrack that uh, wouldn't exist without the Beatles, obviously. It was very clear that this movie was written and created in tandem with knowing the music of the Beatles. And it shows very much. I mean, aside from a few songs that I wasn't terribly impressed with the covers, all in all, very, very strong soundtrack and strong movie yeah, on the subject of the covers, I, I, I bite my tongue at this point, but I'm referencing a futuristic uh, podcast here, only because we're strapped for time, and this is considered an overview, but I have a lot to say on on uh, Across the Universe, as well as a lot of other of these. Um, the, you know, like I wasn't terribly impressed with Bono's cover that he had done for Across the Universe. There were a couple others. Which one was that one? Um, he did I Am the Walrus. Yeah, some of them just seem very yeah, arbitrary. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, but, okay. but then again, for the benefit of being Mr. Kite, was by gorgeous. Eddie Izzard, yeah. was fantastic. <laughs> I it was, love that. I loved the, the imagining of it and the, and the trippy scene that they had done with it. It was and, bizarre, I'll tell you And that. it was very bizarre, but I enjoyed it. Um, my next choice is the comic book, comic, uh, graphic novel-inspired Watchmen, which had a very, you know, it was a very period movie, and it had the music, music to reflect it. And, and, and I just thought it was very, very, very solid. I'm going to start moving a little quicker now because, you know, I want to make sure that we get everything in. The next one is Queen of the Dam. I'm an Anne Rice fan. I did like her first three books. I thought Queen of the Dam was not a great movie. Though, you know, I, I enjoyed it. It wasn't a bad movie to me. I very much enjoyed it. 
But what I like about that soundtrack is that there are five or six tracks on the soundtrack that were originals written by Jonathan Davis of Korn. But because they had their own brand new album coming out a month later, the record label prohibited Jonathan Davis from singing those songs on the soundtrack. He was able to sing them on the movie, because the movie, the movie's DVD release wouldn't come out until after the, the album. But the soundtrack was coming out before their album, and they didn't want to detract from their sales. So instead, they got other new metal singers like David Draymond of, of Disturb, Chester Benningfield from Linkin Park, um, uh, Jay Gordon from Orgy, all of these singers to sing his songs. So the band is still torn, but the lead singers are stepping in to sing for Jonathan Davis, which I thought was fascinating. Um, the next one is Sucker Punch, another movie um, by the creator of Watch, the director of Watchmen, um, which was... A very trippy and surreal movie that I very much enjoyed. And the soundtrack had lots, featured lots of covers, but that were solid, strong covers. Some of which I even made like better than the originals. Like a White Rabbit, Rabbit cover that blew my mind the first oh, time I heard not, it. do not, do not say you can do better than Janice. I'm not saying. I'm just saying <laughs> that White Rabbit was done very well. Oh, it was respectfully done. And it was done, done very well. Um, my the tricky thing with covers, people will object. Yes. My my next choice is more of a nostalgia choice. It's one of the first CDs I ever bought, and it was just a very solid soundtrack at the time. And that's the Space Jam soundtrack. It had one of the best. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just have to laugh. It's at that very one. out of place, but come it, on and slam and welcome to the jam. It was come just a very. Man. First of all, it has <laughs> Seal's cover of "Fly Like an Eagle," yeah, which, which is, was very well done. <laughs> I, I very much I'll loved agree with that. that, that I, and that it also the, there was the the theme for the Monstars, which were the competitive the the enemy basketball team, was a compilation of five solid and respected rap artists who were out in that that time period, and it was a very interesting compilation that was never really done again, featuring Coolio, Method Man, Busta Rhymes, like these rappers who. Since and before had never worked together, but they did this song that was very, very well made and, and, and I enjoyed very much and was the beginnings of my introduction to liking hip-hop. And then my final choice, though not last by any means, is the, the only true score that I have on my list, and that's the score from The Dark Knight. I think that that's a movie that's powerful, emotion, emotional connection that I have with it and its powerfulness is directly connected to music behind that movie, you know. There are many scenes that wouldn't have felt as impactful if it weren't for that strong score by Hans Zimmer. And I gotta say that that specific reason why you chose that track is why I basically chose all of the tracks on my list. For me, I had two criteria to uh, fulfill. One, it had to be um, an actual album. I mean, it had to be something I would be willing to listen to as uh, uh, a group to flow together. But the other criteria was it had to actually make sense in context of the movie. It had to make the movie better. So uh, my list is actually uh, very similar to, to Matt's. Um, the ones that I that we got the same of is Scott Pilgrim, Across the Universe, Sucker Punch, Fear and Loathing. They were all – well, those are my top four. They were all very, very well written and fit the movie. They were covers. They were originals. But they actually did fit the framework of what I was looking for. And there's something I listened to. In fact, Cross the Universe, the day after I saw that movie, I bought the album. I had to because I love the Beatles. And the majority of the songs were just so respectfully remade and remastered and flavored differently. I had to. But for me, I also had a lot of not really lyrically driven uh, um, 
uh, albums. For for me, I had The Matrix and Tron Legacy for the basically the same reason. The music, while I can listen to in the car and enjoy listening to over and over again, even The Matrix, it fit the framework of the movie so well, it made the movie. Especially the leg, uh, uh, Tron Legacy with Daft Punk doing the entire album. It made the scenes powerful. It's one of the better metal soundtracks for a film, I think, in my opinion. Matrix or Tron? Uh, Matrix, Matrix. Yes. Yes. I agree. It really it had that industrial robot feel to it that the Matrix was doing. Sure. Yeah. Rage Against the Machine really stood out on that soundtrack. I mean, Wake Up, that song was big before then, but it kind of had a revival after that soundtrack, soundtrack came out. Because and- it fit the framework of what they were doing. And the same thing with Tron. The, the mixing, the computerized sound was perfect for Tron Legacy, for introducing Tron to a new generation. At the same time, I have uh, the Harry Potter series and Star Wars, specifically because I don't think either of those movie groups could, in, could even approach the level of power without the actual orchestra work. And I, I actually listen to them separately. I listen to Star Wars. I listen to Harry Potter um, just to get the feel, background music, or just to experience the movie without av- actually having to watch it. Where I'm, I'm reading a book, but I want to set a tone to it. Or I'm doing work, and I want to set the tone right. I, I find both of those scores to just be very compelling. But my last two choices were, were chosen, I think, because of the music it actually involved. And that is uh, Ocean's Eleven which a lot of Elvis-style influence, and American Pie, a lot of uh, um, Blink-182 influence. And I think the music used during those movies made those movies awesome because I don't think you would have got the same uh, uh, Vegas feel in Ocean's Eleven without the soundtrack. I don't think you would have got that same I'm-growing-up feel or, or teen movie feel, and American Pie did it well. And a lot of people copied American Pie because of the way they did their music. Uh, because they, ha- they actually had Blink-182 in the movie just to make it that much better. And I think both of those soundtracks really, really caught on to what they were, they were trying to create with this media. Sure. Well, to be honest, I think that's a great criteria to go by here. Because... I think it really does... The the reason we buy soundtracks is so that we can have them in our cars, listen to them separately. You need to be able to do it without the film. That is a... That is the primary strength to soundtracks. So, I think, in the end, when we're really discussing, uh, you know, soundtrack versus score, or versus that sort of happy blend of the two, the kind that, you know, uh, include... um, songs from certain artists, as well as having more of a primary producer that sort of ties it all in together between the scenes. You know, that, that, that binding factor that really makes the movie the movie. Um, I think in the end, it's really all irrelevant. It's whether it has an effect on you in the film, as well as having an effect on you separately. So that said, let me just go through a few of them here. Uh, this is in no particular order, but I might end with some of the uh, finer points. Rushmore, first off, I love most of Wes Anderson's stuff. I think that he is one of the leading indie film directors of our, of our age, and he surrounds himself by very, very talented people. He does not simply try to make a movie to make a movie. He, all aspects, all aspects of it have to be artistic. He, he binds the directing with the 
the choices of his uh, of his artists, and as well as uh, I believe it was Mark Mothersbaugh. That would have been the binding fa- factor in Rushmore, and I think it, that's really what creates the tone. This very sort of ironic quality to uh, a contemplative film that is about a very silly little kid and a very sad old man. It's it's uh, it works well. That said, the second one is really off the wall. Forbidden Zone. This is directed by Danny Elfman's brother, Richard Elfman, and it uses Danny Elfman's music as it existed back when he was in the days of Oingo Boingo Band. And there's a lot of that stuff in here, as well as some picks that are just bizarre. You get a lot of Cab Calloway, the sturdy swing in here. But all this cannot effectively explain why I love the soundtrack as a whole. I find it to be my number one surrealist pick on this list here is that it is a surrealist film to the most extreme I've ever seen it done. It's it's raunchy, it's weird, it's bizarre, and the movie itself may offend a lot of people. Nevertheless, the soundtrack on it, I think, is a, a quirky modern surrealist uh, experience like I've never seen before. Uh, still going. Kill Bill. Kill Bill was that uh, thing that John really, really wanted to put on his list, but he just couldn't bring I just couldn't find the room. You have, like, three or four that I just couldn't find the room to put them on. That's all right. You you took some pretty good ones yourselves. But we're trying to get a good variety here, and I think we achieved that for the most part. Uh, Kill Bill, I mean, as you know, Quentin Tarantino, he's also a pretty quirky director in his own right, but he, he... That was the first time he did epic really, really well to me. He... He made the whole movie sort of after an anime, uh, or in the style of an anime, rather. And there's scenes of it um, sort of spurted throughout the film. And as a result, the soundtrack sort of resembles that. It's sort of this Western anime vibe. That just it, it, it binds it really well together. And for a two-volume set, um, I think it matches each scene perfectly. Still going? Here's the repeat. Back to the future. What can I say? Matt said it all. I think Huey Lewis did a great job. <laughs> Um, fifth element. This is, as number five, is the fifth element of my list. And what can I say? I have never seen a sci-fi comedy that was so artistically done. Because sci-fi comedies tend to be really, really bad <laughs> in general. And oh, God. fifth element, man, I, I just have to defend it as the one of the only ones of its kind that is actually done well. I think it blended the comedy with the sci-fi element and with the general artistic feel that it had going for it. It takes place like hundreds of years in the future, and they had this way of actually making me believe it was music from the future uh, via the scenes in the movie itself as well as, um, as well as just the binding feel of the story that they were trying to tell. So, still going on? Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? Which I also wondered on my list. Oh, yeah. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? I mean, next to Wes Anderson, I would call the Coen brothers the... the. I can't even really say whether they're more or less than Wes Anderson. They're just a different type of director. They are indie directors. They're very good at what they do. And this movie was made after a sort of... It's, it's, it's made after the Odyssey. It is pretty much the Odyssey told in a 1930s setting. It's it's re-envisioned in a way that I think only the Coen brothers could do. So almost, almost plagiarized. Almost. Almost. It's but like you borderline. Know, I don't think Homer will really uh, come back to kill us. Yeah, no. Yeah. In any case, what can I say? It, it's and it's got 30, a pretty... it's thirties music. 
it, it's got a great folk sound. Oh, totally. Yeah. And we got that Robert Johnson. Yeah. Uh, that's that's real the big pull. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I the father it. of blues. What can I say? Now we get into the real interesting stuff here. 2001 Space Odyssey. The Stanley Kubrick movie, which every seems to shock everyone as to whether it was actually an originally composed score or a soundtrack. Well, now you have it on air. It is a soundtrack. It is it is the works of several modern classicalists if that can if you follow that at all and it basically bind it, it basically binds the movie together in a way that um what can i say you got to see it it's a psychedelic experience and some of it is very very jarring but it blends with the idea that he was trying to get at which is a very very grand grand tale of humanity's elevation to intellectualism in you know, the Arthur C. Clarke uh, book. Now we get Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind, which is one of my all-time favorite movies as a whole. Which, which is also... Which was number three on the list on I wish I could list. include. Yeah, yeah, gotta have a crossover here. But And I really liked the, the whole movie. Oh. oh, you have no idea. That, oh. that is one of my favorite movies of all time, aside from the soundtrack alone. And it got a lot of flack because it wasn't a comedy and Jim Carrey was in it. Which is absolute BS, in my yeah. opinion. People shouldn't be judged on the previous work. They should be judged yeah. in the work they're doing. He, was... he, he did a fantastic oh, yeah, job. Absolutely. But that aside, the music itself, most of it is, uh, is composed by John Bryan, but not necessarily as a score. It's one of those half-and-half uh, -half type deals. Includes a lot of work. Uh, the, one of the main themes in it is a song for by Beck, which is just this heart-wrenchingly sad song that goes with the depressing tale they're trying to get at and beck is no stranger to music i mean he, he i mean soundtracks especially he did he wrote all of the sex bomb songs for scott, scott pilgrim, pilgrim as well as had his own song on scott pilgrim as well yeah totally and i think john bryan was very tasteful at uh at bringing that all together now we get beetlejuice beetlejuice my ninth and i i it's difficult to say whether this is my favorite or whether there's a my tenth is my favorite here. But Beetlejuice is another Danny Elfman, and this is after Danny Elfman came into his own. He's no longer with Oingo Boingo, as he was back in Forbidden Zone, but in Beetlejuice, he wrote the whole thing himself. This is one of the few scores that I really had to put on here, simply because I could listen to this uh, apart from the film at any time of day. It, it is just a very, very powerful track, and I think it's the only soundtrack that has ever done the job of comedic macabre in a film. That's just, it's the only thing I know of in that style. Which brings me to my final one. The Shining, another Stanley Kubrick film. And another one that seems to shock everybody as to whether it's actually, uh, as to whether it's actually a score or whether it's a soundtrack. Well, surprise, surprise, it's a soundtrack. Kubrick always surprises. And most of it is by uh, George Ligeti and Christophe Pen Penderecki. Those are more modern classicalists, and they wrote their pieces apart from the film, before the film, within about uh, 10 or 20 years before the film. And Kubrick decided that that was what he was going to use to tell Stephen King's tale. And it just, it worked, it is so jarring at times. when it, you're. It honestly married Stephen King's work to the music, to the actors, better than anything it I make, think Kubrick there did. There are songs in that soundtrack Easily. that are, make you as unsettled as the characters are in the movie. Totally. Easily. And it, to, to be able to combine horror, thriller with... Uh, to get the music not just creepy, but to truly 
marry horror thriller to the music was just incredible. And the funny thing is that Stephen King hated it. Stephen King really hated it, which yeah. you know goes to show Kubrick is really the artist here. He yeah. used a story and he made it his own, and I, I think it is one of the best movies of all time, in my personal opinion, in terms of and, aesthetic value. And the book is actually one of the most trite books you're ever going to read. It's a terrible book. That's why Kubrick's the artist. Yeah. Yeah. No, Stephen King, King wrote, is the story. wrote a thousand better books, and he's written some really... He doesn't write very good books, and he's written better. Yep, we're saying that on air, too. Yeah. Stephen yeah. King is a little bit overrated. Read Koontz instead. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, um, I want to thank you guys for listening, as always. Um, comment, please. Check us out on iTunes. Subscribe. Write a review. Um, pl- feel free to comment on this post with your top ten, or even just a couple of your favorites, if you have any. And tell us which ones should be on our favorites. Yep. Um, t- uh, please give us your, opin- your opinions, feedback. We always welcome that. You can always reach us at crashchordsblog at gmail.com, as well as on the website, crashchords.com. And believe me, you'll be hearing many more on these soundtracks yes. in the coming weeks. Um, f- uh, you can find us also on facebook.com slash crashchords. We're everywhere. We have a Twitter Please go ahead and uh, reach out to us however you can. And remember, as always, music is life and life is good.